Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I will read the entirety of the chapter. Our focus this morning will be verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, in this very strange time, Lord, as we are always dependent upon you, Lord, we are no less dependent with regard to the communication of your word, so I ask that you would empower me for service this morning, still the hearts of your people at home. May they be sanctified, Lord, by way of this glorious truth, and may any who are outside of the faith today be enfolded into the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we have now come to chapter 13 in our study of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, um, a very familiar passage of the Bible, one of the most prized jewels um, of Scripture, dubbed by some as Paul's hymn of love, because of his um, almost lyrical statement on the supremacy of love. But I think you're aware that um, even most garden variety pagans are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You could ask someone on the street to complete this sentence. Love is patient, love is kind. Human beings created in the image of God, whether they're Christian or not, know something about love. They have a need for it, often um, a fascination with it, novels, movies, and most songs in pop culture have love as their theme. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, which I did, you'll remember the idea of love being anchored in the utopian idea of um, unity and free love. The underlying reality of which really is I love me and want you. What the Bible says and what most Americans think about love 
um, are often two very different things. Love is defined pretty much by anything we like. We'll say, I love my spouse, I love my kids, I love my job, I love my car, I love my dog. Some people even love their cat. <laughs> but the Greek, as you are well aware, have, has different words for love. To differentiate the kinds of affections that we have for things and people. There's friendship love, there's erotic love, or romantic love, but the Greek term used for love here is a word that was actually seldom used in Greek culture. That, of course, is the word agape from the Greek verb agapao, which means to love, to seek the good of others. Now, if you've been to a wedding or two, um, you have probably seen the words of 1 Corinthians 13 printed on the ceremony program. You've no, like, no doubt, most likely heard those words expounded by the minister officiating the ceremony. But what, what's most interesting and, and very important to note here is that Paul is not talking about marriage. He is not addressing husbands and wives. Now, though he does in other parts of the New Testament, here there is nothing either explicit or implicit regarding marriage. And although chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is indeed a passage that can be lifted from its context and still speak with power, it is not an, an independent piece on love that just mysteriously shows up here so that preachers have something to say at weddings. Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. And what it is supposed to be like within the body of Christ. So an understanding of context actually enriches our comprehension of Paul's teaching here in this glorious and very famous passage. Gordon Fee, a Bible commentator, said this, quote, the love affair with this love chapter has allowed it to be read regularly apart from its context, which does not make it less true, but causes one to miss too much. End of quote. The church at Corinth was made up of new believers, for the most part, struggling to leave their pagan ways of thinking and doing behind them. Paul has been tackling issues over theology, lawsuits within the church, believe it or not, idolatry, immorality, marriage, divorce, and social class biases. And here we're in the middle of a section, that is chapters 12 through 14, one unit, devoted to the problem of pride and self-love that was spilling over into Sunday worship services. That is regarding spiritual gifts, namely tongues, both the real gift and counterfeit, pretended gift. And Paul's concern is that some of these hyper-spiritual believers within the church are competitively, selfishly scrambling for the higher, greater, more showy more flashy gifts. If you look at chapter 12 and verse 30, notice it reads, um, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, as we pointed out last Lord's Day, um, 
a better translation of that would be, but you earnestly desire the greater gifts. That is, we, we take it, according to context, as an indicative and not an imperative. If you remember back in verse 11 of chapter 12, Paul made clear that the one who distributes the spiritual gifts is God himself, and he does so as he pleases. So why then would he give an imperative? Why would he give a command to earnestly desire what God sovereignly distributes? So we we take this as an indicative, but you are desiring greater gifts. He goes on, he says, and I show you, notice, and I show you a still more excellent way. And here in chapter 13, Paul explains the more excellent way by focusing on the love we are to have for our brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. And this, of course, is in context to Corinthian pride and elitism. And that is the excellence of agape. The excellence of Agape, this is a love that seeks the good of others who do not deserve it. Agape is the reciprocating reality of divine love. Again, agape amongst God's people is the reciprocating reality of divine love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is compassionate, sacrificial, divine love. Jesus, on the eve of his death, on the cross, washed the feet of his disciples who were bickering among themselves to determine which one deserved the most prominence in the kingdom. Jesus said to them that night, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Now, the definition of that kind of love, that is divine love, we read of in 1 John chapter 4. So, turn your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John, not the gospel of John, but towards the end of the Bible, the back of the Bible, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Now notice there, verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Notice at the end of the verse, for God is love. God is love. So God's love is always showing itself, the extreme example of which is verse 9. Notice. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So here we have divine love that moves to meet man's greatest need. The sacrifice of God to save us was the sending of his beloved son into this world to die. On the cross. Look at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, notice divine love. Notice this. Divine love is not dependent upon the object that is being loved. Divine love is not dependent upon the object of the one being loved by God. In other words, it's not that we were down here crying, Oh Lord, we love you and we want you to love us. No. Divine love is not based on anything regarding the objects to to bring that love forth, to bring God's love forth. Out. Divine love proceeds solely from the person of God. 
Because, beloved, left to ourselves, Scripture's clear, we hate God. Left to ourselves, we hate God. We are at enmity with God. Everything that we came to see about God just through general revelation alone, Romans 1 tells us we suppressed that truth. We tried to hold it down, ignore it in our unrighteousness. We are, every one of us left to ourselves, inherently corrupt. John Kelvin, that great theologian, when explaining the decree of our the, the degree, rather, of our depravity and how mankind is born in original sin, made a statement about babies. He said this: "Babies are as depraved as rats." R.C. Sproul, great theologian of our day who's now with the Lord, still writing books, this most recent book entitled Growing in Holiness, quotes Kelvin's statement about babies, and he goes on to say this, quote, I have to go on record here that I strenuously disagree with John Kelvin in that association. I think it's a slip of the pen by the great reformer. Why? Because he doesn't do justice to the rat. The rat is just going around doing what rats do, obeying the laws of nature, running away from cats, chasing after the cheese, and spending its time rooting around in the garbage dumps. The rat, however, has not risen up in protest against its creator. No rat was involved in the conspiracy to execute the Son of God when he was on this earth. Sproul goes on to say, but we don't want to think of ourselves in those categories, and so we are aghast when Kelvin or I make such comments. End of quote. Truth of the matter is, sin has, in Augustine's memorable phrase, curved man in upon himself. And yet, 1 John 4 verse 10, and yet... He loved us and sent his son, that is, God in human flesh. God in human flesh, Jesus. His equality with God, as Paul tells us elsewhere, is something that he did not have to grasp. It is something he did not have to reach for because he had it already. He had it already, divinity, and he becomes a man. He took on flesh, incarnate. He was made human. He became one of us in order to be, notice the text, the propitiation for our sins. Divine love. Propitiation speaks of appeasing the wrath of one who's greatly offended by sparing the offender. Propitiation. Satisfaction. So what God did from out of his love was to send his own son in order to appease his own wrath. So in a Trinitarian sense, God poured out his wrath upon himself in order to spare us who are worse than rats. In verse 8, notice, God is love manifested in the sending of his Son, God the Son, verse 10, to become the propitiation of God the Father. The most supreme demonstration of divine love is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I de de declare to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So divine love is obviously more than an emotion, but is always acting to fulfill the will of God. Now, one of God's attributes, God's attributes, that is the essential characteristics of God, one of those attributes is love. We just read it, God is love. But he, he's also just, and thus, his wrath. 
Now, when theologians talk about the attributes of God, they divide them into communicable and incommunicable. That is, shared attributes and unshared attributes with his image bearers. For instance, we do not share one of the incommunicable attributes of God as eternality. We do not share God's eternality. We are creatures of time. Though we will have no end, we had a beginning, whereas God had no beginning. We are not omniscient. God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. We will never share in that attribute because we are finite creatures of an infinite creator. One of the attributes of God we do share in, one of those communicable attributes, one of those shared attributes is love. Look at verse 11, 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we just read the description of divine love. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. Those who know God are known by God and have this love. Now back to 1 Corinthians 13. That's our introduction, 1 Corinthians 13. This chapter has been divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 3, we see the necessity of love. That'll be our focus this morning. Verses 4 through 7, we see the character of love. And then in verses 8 through 13, we see the permanence of love. Okay, and notice the shift in, in verse 1 to the first person. Paul, again, is using himself as an example. Notice in verse 1, he, he, he says, If I, if I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, uh, and I have not love, conclusion, I, I, all I am is noise. Verse 2, if I, if I have certain gifts, if I have all faith, but do not have love, conclusion, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I do this, if I do that, and do not have love, conclusion, it profits me nothing. Now, very important to note that love is not a gift. Love is not a substitute for spiritual gifts, nor, by the way, is love a substitute for truth. Love is rooted in truth, even hard truth. Love is a fruit of the Spirit and must accompany the gifts given by the Spirit. Love does not replace the gifts. This is Paul's argument, as we shall see this morning. And that, according to the Apostle Paul, is what the more excellent way is. And still I show you a more excellent way, more excellent than your jealousy, Corinth, more, more excellent than your envy, your selfishness, and your pride, which has characterized the Corinthians for the last 12 chapters. I show you a more excellent way. So here in these opening verses, verses 1 through 3, we see uh, the necessity of love. And what Paul does here, friends, is he pushes everything to its limit, and he does so by using hyperbole. He pushes things to the limit here. He exaggerates, showing us that without love, no matter what we do, no matter what we're enabled to do, it all adds up to zilch without love. And, and he uses illustrations from the possible to the impossible. Things that are doable and then to the hypothetical. That's what I mean by pushing everything by way of hyperbole. And he does this to expose the hypocritical arrogance that was tearing the unity of the church at Corinth apart. He begins with tongues. He begins with the gift of tongues because it was the spiritual gift nearest and dearest to the hearts of those within the church of Corinth. 
Flashy gifts as they were congratulating themselves for possessing something that they had nothing to do with. It's a gift. Now, some of them had the real gift. Others had counterfeited that gift with just stammering gibberish. Verse 1, notice. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now here, tongues can be translated languages. He's talking about the real gift, the miraculous ability to speak foreign languages unknown to the speaker. That's what biblical tongues is. It was a sign to unbelievers declaring gospel truth, and it was also a sign of judgment to Israel. We'll see that when we get to chapter 14 and verse 22, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy all the way back in Isaiah 28, a sign of judgment to Israel. Now, of course, not everyone had this gift, the gift of languages. Thus, the reason interpretation was necessary, which was also a gift. So here he refers to the tongues of men. If I have it, but not love, Bong, bong, bong. Notice, he moves from the possible, languages of men, to the impossible, tongues of angels. If I have the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong. Let me pause for a moment and say this. Tongues of angels is not a proof text for what's referred to today as heavenly language, what's referred to today as prayer language or angelic speech. People in our day, usually in charismatic circles, use this as a proof text to describe why they're babbling. They say, it's my prayer language. What are you doing? Oh, it's my prayer language. Tongues of angels. Doesn't exist. Paul is using hyperbole. Moving from the possible to the impossible, right here. Think about this. Some without the gift of tongues in the church of Corinth, wanting recognition, would blurt out chords of ecstatic utterance that they learned in pagan temples, just gibberish, okay? Now imagine the real gift is in operation within the church. Someone is speaking in a real foreign language, and someone on the other side of the congregation is jealous, and they want attention. So you have William Wannabe, who hears the guy who really has the gift of tongues, and so he begins cackling like a chicken, uttering, you know, tala shakunda, lava shabako. Counterfeit. Gibberish. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The the gift of tongues was to be interpreted so that it edified everyone within the body. For those who didn't speak that language. You know, the current, speaking of brass, gongs, clanging cymbals, the Corinthians were famous for their production of brass. It was part of their industry. In in part of temple practice worship by Greek pagans, especially those who associated themselves with with Dionysus, the Olympian god of pleasure, of festivity, the god of madness and wild frenzy. Symbols and gongs, within pagan temples, especially associated with Dionysus, accompanied their nonsensical, frenzied gibberish. This is all going on in pagan temples. So Paul, I think, draws from this, and he may be saying, look, if your gifts are not used, if they're not driven, if they're not harnessed by love for your brother, it's like the racket that goes on in pagan temples who worship false gods. It's that kind of noise if you have not love for your brother. One clangs and the other chimes. That's all it is. And remember, many Corinthians were saved from out of that madness. 
This is a counterfeit, and it is to this day. So Paul says, even if I have supernatural eloquence, okay, if, if I have eloquence to be able to um, speak in the tongues of men and this supernatural ability, we'll call it tongues of angels, if I have not agape love, I am nothing more than the obnoxious, agonizing, irritating, clinging nonsense that goes on in pagan temples. That's all I am, if I have not love. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Notice Paul first speaks of prophecy. This is a gift that was at the top because this gift is the revelation of God to men. Now, prophecy, we don't have that gift today, but in the first century, it was the actual revelation of God's truth given to men. And while they were awaiting the completion of the New Testament canon, the church needed revelation as she moved forward. So God provided it. And until the apostolic writings were canonized, the gift of prophecy was essential. Paul had that gift. Now today, preaching is the gift of exposition of already revealed truth by way of divine inspiration, which I'm doing right now. This is more the gift of illumination, preaching, of divine revelation. So as we preach, we're hopeful, we're prayerful um, that the gift of illumination is an operation, that is to illumine the minds of it's hearers to understand the already revealed text of Scripture. So if prophecy, if, if teaching is not uttered in love, it too, Paul says, amounts to nothing. You know, we've all met Christians, have we not, who, who love to boast in their doctrinal knowledge. We met those Christians who, who love to raise questions, not because they're seeking information, but they're seeking to cause strife, trouble. In our day, they appear on the internet, Facebook, blogs, but you know what they are? Bong, 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 clang, clang, clang. All they are is looking for a fight, constantly. One preacher brings the metaphor up to date. He puts it like this, quote, If I network for the gospel but have not love, I am only a noisy blog or meaningless tweet. End of quote. What did Paul say earlier in chapter 8, verse 1, about knowledge? Knowledge what? Puffs up. But love edifies. Truth is important. Knowledge is important. But separated from love, it's, it's nothing, he says. It's a bunch of noise. Back in chapter 3 and verse 1, to those who thought themselves to be so spiritual, Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. You know what the primary sin of Reformed Christians is? You know, we who embrace Reformed theology... Pride. We may be right about doctrine. We are. But we cannot forget Paul's words here, which is also doctrine. Amen? May this apply to all of us. If we have not love for our brothers and sisters, we're nothing but noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. So remember that, beloved, when you're writing to someone who's a brother in Christ who's Arminian. Speak the truth, make sure we do it in love. Notice Paul continues, and he moves now again from the possible to the impossible. And here, he aims at two sacred Corinthian cows. Notice, what was their sacred cow? Mysteries and what? 
knowledge. The early church was always being pulled into, you know, mysticism and Gnosticism, secret knowledge. Now, did Paul have spirit-given insight into the mysteries of Christ? Yes. He revealed the mysteries of Christ as an apostle. Paul had that gift, but he said, look, apart from love, it amounts to nothing. Now, did, did Paul know all mysteries? No, and that's the exaggeration, all mysteries. That's the hyperbole. All mysteries Paul did not have. He did not know. Paul didn't even know the mystery of why God allowed his thorn in the flesh to remain. God's answer? My grace is sufficient. Now consider knowledge. Consider knowledge of the ultimate purposes of God. Suppose Paul had that, which he did not. The ultimate purposes of God, that is according to God's decreed will, that which is going to happen in the future. He did not have that knowledge. So here, Paul again uses hyperbole as though if I were to know um, all the details of God's decreed will, both seen and unseen, even if I did, even if I could, but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. Notice, and if I have all faith, all faith, not saving faith, but, but all faith that removes mountains. This, this is the gift to trust God to work out and fulfill all of his promises. Through all the waves of life, through all the trouble of life, confident, secured faith, faith that trusts without question in all aspects of life even the most challenging of situations, that kind of faith. If, if you had all of that and beyond, faith that, that removes mountains without love, Paul says, I, I'm nothing. Notice, he doesn't say my works are nothing. He says, I am nothing. And Paul says this, in the context, again, of a people who thought that having certain gifts really made them, is the, in the language that we use today, something. Boy, he's really something. Boy, she's something. Paul says, without love, I'm nothing. Boy, that person's really someone. They're someone of great importance. So prophecy, all mysteries, all knowledge, mountain-moving faith, Right, All of these accomplishments, all of these skills, which are gifts, by the way, they make you nothing in the kingdom of God if love is not the motive. That's his argument. Now, when we speak about divine love, with which we started this morning, divine love, the love that we are to exemplify, divine love never never seeks greatness in the Bible, it is greatness. It is greatness. Turn in your Bibles to, to Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. Jesus, during his ministry, leads his disciples, notice verse 33, um, to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, um, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and ever, whoever receives me Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now notice, Jesus asked the question, what were you guys talking about? Red-faced, embarrassed. Why? Because it was just a fleshly-driven motive to be praised and honored above the others. Now you'd think they had to learn their lesson. John, John and James did not. Turn over to chapter 10. 
verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're, you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So here, they wanted the right hand and the left hand in glory, the top seats. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. And the other ten, we know, were indignant. Why? Because they didn't think to ask first. Notice verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slaves of all. Again, he teaches the same truth. If you really want to be somebody of importance in the kingdom, then he goes on to give the example of all examples, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's that? Divine love. Divine love. You know, even as Christians who, who think in a worldly way sometimes, we think what we do and what we accomplish in the church or for the church is marks of our own worth. attainments in life that prove that we really are something. Look what I've accomplished. Jesus said no. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life. That's divine love. Paul says, without divine love, I am nothing. Verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body be, to be burned but do not have love, it profits me. Notice, nothing. This is the gift of giving. In the context of absolute sacrifice, notice what he says. Even the person who sells all that he has, he gives it all to the poor, without love he gains nothing. It's nothing. The one who voluntarily sacrifices himself in some spectacular fashion and lacks love, Paul says he gains nothing. Imagine someone with the gift of giving understands and finds out you're in need, so they exercise that gift on your behalf to cover your need. But then they turn around and remind you of it all the time about what they did for you, about what they gave to you. Perhaps um, to have leverage over you, to manipulate you, or perhaps they walk around the church telling everyone else what they did for you. That's not out of love. They do that for the praises of men. Jesus said to the Pharisees, what you do, you do for the praises of men, so guess what? You've received your reward. So gifts of the Spirit, remember, they're sovereignly distributed to the church so that we're able to love one another as love is a fruit of the what? Spirit. Without which, that is fruit of the Spirit, which is love, the first and the fruits of the Spirit on that vine, 
Without that, all other fruits of the Spirit shrivel up. No joy. Love, joy, no peace, no patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They all shrivel up without love. To be exercised according to the gifts that have been distributed to us. Without love, I'm nothing, Paul says. A banging gong, a clanging cymbal. So, we're going to wrap this up. Many people make the mistake of reading 1 Corinthians 13 as some encouraging, feel-good Bible passage full of happy thoughts about love. Instead, as Philip Ryken asserts in his book, Loving the Way Jesus Loves, he said this, and I quote, I'm going to be quoting from this book now for the next couple minutes. I find this passage to be almost terrifying because it sets a standard for love I know I could never meet. None of us lives with this kind of love, and there is an easy way to prove it. So he lays out a test. I took the test. And the test is this, reading from from verse 4 and then inserting my own name into the passage every time I read the word love. Okay, you ready? For example, John is patient and kind. John does not envy or boast. John is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. John bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. John never fails. Bottom line, John is a failure. Not very loving at all. Dear Pacific Hope Church family, everyone who gets around you people, everyone who comes and visits here, the reports that I receive is that they talk about how loving of a congregation you all are. Okay, but but let's face it. We're all deficient here. We're all deficient with this regarding this kind of love. So if we were to examine ourselves just for a moment, um, for instance, if, if you pout when you don't get your way, you're deficient in this love. If you become sour um, and, and sullen towards those who don't meet your expectations, whoever they may be, um, you're deficient in this love. If you're ever filled with jealousy or envy, if you hold a grudge, if you secretly enjoy the failure of others, if you're at all self-promoting, self-aggrandizing, if you are unforgiving when wronged, if you're easily offended, bent on getting even, or smear someone's name behind their back, you're deficient in this kind of love. So, while the love chapter sounds ridiculous when we fill the blanks with our own name, if 1 Corinthians 13 is a portrait of love, and it is, then it's really a sketch of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Savior we meet in the Gospels. So it reads very differently, and again, I'm quoting from the book now, when we put Jesus in the picture. Notice. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not seek his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul speaks in the first person. And then he makes this dramatic shift, which we'll get to next time in verses 4 through 8, where love is personified. First he tells us what he cannot do without love, and then he tells us what only love can do. And then Riken, in his book, cites a message that was preached by one Josh Moody at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. 
He said this, quote, the reason love can do all these things is that it has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything that I am not. This realization does not crush me. It liberates me because the love of Jesus is so big that he loves even me, the one who failed the test. And because he loves me, he's promised to save me, to forgive me, and to change me. We are nothing without love, but when we know Jesus, who does nothing without love, he will help us love the way he loves. End of quote. You know, biblical love, friends, is not a technique. We're never taught five easy steps to love or or ten ways to become um, a loving person. There's only one way to love our brothers and sisters as God has commanded us to do. And that is to look at the cross. Look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he died for all my sins, including those times that I have failed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, just as he has commanded me. We look to Christ. We look to Christ and we remember the loving kindness of divine love, with which I open this morning. Divine love. Sending Christ our Savior, who loved you, gave himself for you, and who still loves you in spite of your failures to love like this. All the while, still enabling you, one of the fruits of the Spirit, because you have the Spirit. He's the vine. We're the branches. We abide in the vine. He's life. We have life in him. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments My commandment is that you love one another just as I have loved you. Therefore, let us seek, brothers and sisters, Pacific Hope Church, let us seek this more excellent way, ask for it, pray for it, think on it, because Christ loves you. Manifest in divine love, becoming the propitiation for our sins. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the sending of your Son, your divine love poured out, given to us, not because we loved you first, but because you first loved us. And in spite of us, you remove the enmity where we now have peace with you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Help us, Lord, in this most excellent way as we walk by faith, as we yield to the Spirit and not to the flesh, to serve one another in a way that glorifies you for the sake of your Son, divine love personified. Amen.